from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. A picture-perfect setting, the ideal weather for early November, and the Ag Day and Military Appreciation Game. And we're celebrating both as we wrap up our 2022 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from right here at Mizzou. The man behind the technology that helped make the first ever pig heart transplant in humans possible. If you need a kidney, uh, you can get dialysis. If you need a heart and don't get one, you die and go off the list. We're uncovering the research that's still at play today. Grain prices surge on news out of Ukraine. We found out that I think that Ukraine-Russia corridor represents about 55 cents in the market. A group of Mizzou economists explore the latest waves in the commodity markets. A Mizzou grad turned fighter pilot now has a passion for pigs. A lot of people that are in the military grew up on the farm. We're celebrating a life of service and perseverance. And in John's world. When India is number one. The 2022 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from the University of Missouri is brought to you exclusively by Bex. From farmers' first pass in the field to the final one at harvest, it's a game plan rooted in faith and belief. Bex Hybrids is with you every turn because both on and off the field, we're all farmers at heart. See why at BexHybrids.com. Now for the news. First, Russia said it was pulling out of the Black Sea grain deal, then just suspending it. Now it says it will continue to participate in the deal. Moscow pulled out of the deal after it accused Ukraine of attacking its Black Sea fleet with a series of drones. Ukraine had denied that allegation, but the deal remains on shaky ground. It's due to run out on Saturday, November 19th. A European diplomat telling Reuters Russian President Vladimir Putin will likely use a possible extension as a way to gain leverage. The announcement that Russia was leaving the deal sent wheat prices soaring, but they retreated following the latest announcement. You know, the, the wheat market doesn't know uh, which way is up right now. We basically erased all the gains that we got from the suspension of that agreement. And we're sitting right here, um, uh, you know, kind of in no man's land waiting on some more information. And as of midweek, the UN reports the Black Sea Grain Initiative has moved almost 10 million metric tons of ag product involving more than 420 vessels. Soybeans also reaching a five-week high this week, with traders closely watching access to Brazil supplies in the wake of the country's election. Protests by backers of President Jair Bolsonaro intensified after he refused to concede defeat to Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Bolsonaro later saying he would continue to follow the rules of the nation's constitution, and his chief of staff announced the president had authorized him to begin the transition process. Over 300 federal highways were partially or fully blocked, including the BR-163, the so-called soybean highway. As harvest races towards the finish, the diesel shortage continues to expand. Now parts of the southeast are dealing with acute shortages. Fuel company Mansfield Energy is issuing an alert. While the situation has been tight in the northeast for several weeks, now southeastern states are dealing with supply issues. It blames historically low inventories in part for the problem. Prices in the southeast are now 30 to 80 cents higher than the market average, which AAA says is above 530 a gallon. This comes as exports of gas and diesel have increased, with U.S. petroleum exports hitting a new record in September, according to the Energy Information Administration. The Mideast is actually well supplied. Uh, Midwest is still struggling a little bit. And the East Coast has a, a, a 
they're really fighting for barrels out there because Atlantic Basin and Europe problems. Exports have risen due in part to the Jones Act requirements that make it costly to ship fuels to the U.S. East Coast. The act requires all goods shipped between U.S. ports be carried on ships built, owned and operated by Americans. The administration is already working on new rules that would allow the East Coast to boost emergency supplies of gas and diesel. Well, harvest is more than three quarters of the way done across the country, including in Indiana, according to USDA, as we tour for our latest I-80 harvest update. I think the yield, you know, certainly less than last year. There were a few good pockets of Indiana, uh, northwest Indiana, that yields are probably as good or better. But for the majority of the state, uh, really the impact was uh, felt by that dry weather early on. With the drought conditions and the heat stress, there was also tip back in the corn. Shelby says he thinks both corn and soybean production for the state will be down from last year. That's it for the news. Well, it has been picture perfect weather this week, but it's also been an extremely dry fall for harvest here. We'll have a check of weather when we come back. The I-80 Harvest Tour is brought to you exclusively by Case IH. Case IH equipment is designed, engineered, and built by farmers. See their stories at BuiltByFarmers.com. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. The new 6180 Power Spread Manure Spreader from H&S is the heaviest built spreader in its size. This 800 bushel manure spreader includes a monoblock gearbox and rubber tongue suspension. Find out more at the H&S website. Well, meteorologist Andrew Whitmer filling in for Matt Urasovic, our newlywed who's taking a few weeks off. Andrew, it has been like summer here, nearly 80 degrees in Columbia this week. But just like last week at Kansas State, this area could really use some rain, just not during the game. Well, yeah, and after last week's cold front, that did bring with it at least a chance for some moisture across parts of the plains as well as parts as the, the uh, Mississippi River Valley that really do again need a lot of uh, moisture. Unfortunately, though, as we go throughout this week, uh, we're going to again kind of see it being quiet across much of the heartland here of the country active across the Pacific Northwest, and then we'll be watching if we can get a little tropical wave going that could increase the moisture chances here across the parts of the eastern seaboard, parts of at least the eastern Florida, as well as parts of the eastern Carolinas. If we do get that little tropical low pressure system developing, could bring with it some scattered shower chances, which would be good news as the Carolinas have been going quite dry lately. Meanwhile, again, all eyes on the Pacific Northwest. It is the month of November. To typically, this is their wettest month of the year here, and they're going to be getting a lot of chances here for inundated showers, even snow across parts of the higher elevations. Meanwhile, high pressure is going to kind of be parked around parts of the central parts of the country, and we're also going to be dealing with a breezy and windy conditions across parts of the northern plains here as we go throughout this midweek. Walking through the jet stream here on this Monday, again, we'll be watching kind of this trough developing and that will continue to remain parked out west. Meanwhile, this ridge will stay kind of parked out across the eastern coast here, Midwest Great Lakes states, and that's going to allow again temperatures to be well above average here as we go throughout the first few days of this upcoming week. And then we finally start to see that ridge beginning to break on down. We'll get kind of that trough a little bit more of a zonal flow here trying to take shape here as we go into the latter half of this week. And hopefully again that we could see a few more chances for some showers here later on this week across the heartland of the country. Notice the root zone here from a Halloween Monday 
showing the reds there, and that is an indication of some very dry soils. We really do need the moisture here across the, the northern half of the plains. And the drought monitor, again, reflecting those drier soils out across parts of the Carolinas, Midwestern states, and again, the extreme to exceptional drought is still being felt across the parts of the plain states as well. And where we're dealing with several rounds of precipitation, across the Pacific Northwest. Uh, that is where the uh, conditions still remain dry as well. Luckily for these folks, we will likely start to see improvements on the uh, drought monitor here as we go throughout the next one to two weeks with again that trough system bringing with it scattered showers across to parts of the Pacific Northwest. Temperatures this week again where that trough is expect below average temperatures. Meanwhile, where that ridge is kind of parked out across the eastern half of the US, the well above average temperatures are likely going to be forecasted here throughout the uh, parts of this week and then taking a look at the precipitation. Where those above average temperatures are kind of expect below average temperatures and below average precipitation and where those below average temperatures are. That's an indication of again a more active pattern that is taking shape across parts of the western US. Temperatures this uh, next week though are going to be above average for parts of the Carolinas and then starting to see that cooler weather starting to move on into the Great Lakes parts of the deep south as well. Thanks, Andrew. Well, fireworks in the grain markets this week, but is it all because Russia is abandoning that grain deal? Plus, what policy are our marketing economists watching ahead of the big midterm election? Our marketing roundtables, college roadshow style. That's next. Welcome back. U.S. Farm Report this weekend, College Roadshow with facts here from the University of Missouri. A big thank you to the Missouri Soybean Association as well as the Missouri Beef Industry Council for joining us, as well as our amazing group of Mizzou students. Best turnout we've had so far on College Roadshow. Just behind us, we have the Mizzou team bus that's powered by biodiesel. I mean, the atmosphere here this weekend is just amazing. Ben Brown, as well as Pat Westhoff and Scott Brown joining us for our roundtable. Ben, you look at this week, some fireworks in the market, a lot of it with the uncertainty about what's going on in Ukraine, sparked a little bit of fireworks, then we saw prices retreat. What is moving the markets right now? Yeah, and welcome back, Tyne. We're happy to have you here. Uh, we found out that I think that Ukraine-Russia corridor represents about 55 cents in the market. Uh, prices went up 55 cents when Russia pulled out, and they came back down 53 cents when it looked like Russia was back in. Um, so we'll see. Uh, that's still very much driving headlines within this market, but we've also got some other factors. Exports are, are soft and struggling across some of our commodities across the board. High dollar doing its job there as well and curtailing some demand. Um, and then we look out ahead and think about what's gasoline consumption look for this next year. Where are we going to produce these bushels in the world? Um, I think all those things are front in mind and continuing to play into these markets as we look ahead. Pat, here we are though, nine months into this crisis in Ukraine, Russia doesn't even officially pull out. They say they're not going to uh, you know, be part of, of that grain deal. And we see over a 50 cent move in the markets. How nine months later is that news still moving the markets this much? Yeah, it, it has been important to see how these markets have moved in response to relatively modest news. And yeah, you wouldn't have expected that kind of a movement to happen on just a rumor, right? And here we're back to where we were just a few days ago. So expect to see continued uncertainty and continued moving markets as there's new reports about the latest uh, uh, possible development in that part of the world. So Scott, as a farmer, here we are, you're looking at the risk and you see a 50 cent risk in the market up or a down move just based on this news. So I almost say it's across the board risk that we have to really talk about now today, Tyne, whether it's what do I wanna do on the input side? We know those inputs continue to be high. In some cases there are opportunities maybe for some lower costs, but, but at the same time, I'll just say that 
there's a lot more dollars at stake in getting that crop in the ground, interest rates are higher. I, I don't think all this uncertainty goes away. How much can these individual operations handle in terms of added risk uh, to their operation? It's not a one size fits all, but risk management's so much more important. I always say I'd rather hit singles and doubles than strike out trying to hit a home run. Well, when you look at the wheat market, Ben, you know, there's some farmers that haven't planted wheat here in Missouri for over a decade, and this year they have the drills out and they're planting right now. So already making those decisions for the 2023 season. If you haven't marketed wheat in a while, what advice do you have for some of these farmers right now with a volatile market? Yeah, wheat's a complex market because of all of its different classes and all of its different stories. You look at the, the winter wheat markets that we grow here in Missouri, uh, plagued by drought last year, and we continue to see some, some other challenges in, in the world market as well. Uh, so there is that incentive to put out some wheat. I think last year, uh, late harvest of soybeans delayed some planting of wheat, uh, and also maybe some concern about fertilizer prices moving higher. Uh, curtailed some wheat acres last year. This year, I think we have to worry about the drought um, and the expanding drought in the western part of the United States uh, continuing to, to maybe bring in some of those wheat acres that would have been planted uh, potentially. So I'm looking at the drought and saying, do I apply some of this fertilizer or, or not this fall? When you look at input prices, do you think that we could continue to see those prices creep even higher into the next growing season? It's certainly a possibility. Uh, it comes down to simple things like what's the temperature going to be in Germany this winter time? If it's a cold winter in Germany, they're using lots, lots of natural gas. That means I have less available to produce fertilizer there. These are global markets, so drive up prices worldwide. So there's lots of uncertainty, lots of reasons prices could go higher from any of these inputs, but also maybe some optimism that things may be hopefully past the peak on those input crops. Scott, do you want to add anything to that discussion? I, again, I'll just keep saying, I think it's really important for us to focus on the risk management side. What looks like the absolute best decision today, a few months down the road, could turn out to be the worst one. So, so this idea that I'm going to just continue to market or continue to buy inputs the same way. I think we have to look at the world a little differently. Let's hope 2023 looks as good as I think we're gonna finish 2022, which would be kind of where I sit today, yet there's just so much risk around that kind of forecast of another good year. Well, recession, drought, there's a lot of concerns as we head into 2023, so we have a lot more to talk about. But first, we need to take a quick break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. <laughs> China hasn't just been an economic powerhouse. The country's sheer number of people has also allowed China to claim a top spot. But John Phipps says that could soon change. He joins us this weekend with John's World. As early as next year, 2023, India will surpass China as the world's most populous nation. Now, this count is approximate and symbolic, of course, but it may have more importance than many suspect. What is most interesting to me is the coincidence of Chinese population peaking, it is dropping right now, just as India surpasses it. I can't find any deep demographic meaning for this curiosity, but given global fixation with Chinese population for so long, it will take a generation at least of social studies textbooks to move our attention westward to India. An additional coincidence, is the selection of a first-generation British Indian Prime Minister at the UK, Rishi Sunak. As China descends into deeper authoritarianism under Xi Jinping, 
India, the world's largest democracy, will offer countless comparisons as it attempts to match economic and geopolitical power with its population growth. Despite a large and educated upper class, it remains economically sluggish with a nominal GDP about a quarter of China. But the advanced world has long viewed population as a burden, and it can be in some impoverished countries. Think how long we farmers have embraced the mouths-to-feed image of China. As population trends are now clearly showing declining global population by 2100 and plummeting numbers in developed countries like the EU, the world might begin to look at people as more than an economic load. India will likely never match China's spectacular but probably unsustainable rise in the last couple of decades. India's government is bloated and inefficient by any standard, and like all democracies, many of their policies are contradictory and poorly administered. India will also struggle with the effects of climate change in, in Asia, the irregular monsoons they depend on, and rising temperatures in an already sweltering country. Nonetheless, I expect India to regularly but mildly surprise the world with their steady progress. The history of their peoples is dominated by widespread poverty, but those conditions are trending toward a better future for the low-income sector. There is no indication India could become a major U.S. ag export target, despite that population growth. In 2021, they bought about $1.8 billion of ag goods, but half of that was tree nuts. India's growth simply adds to the shift of economic power and perhaps political power away from the West to the East. Thank you, John. Well, after the break, we're heading about an hour down I-70 from here to visit two brothers who just may hold the keys to a treasure trove of tractors. And one has a strong tie to the Show Me State. Machinery Pete takes us to Concordia, Missouri to visit the Cordes Brothers for Tractor Tales next. Hey, Tyne, this week we're heading just down the road from you to Lafayette County, Missouri to visit our friend Ron Cordes. Now, Ron is known for his amazing collection of John Deere G's, but this week we're going to check out his 1928 John Deere D that's a treasure with an amazing family twist. This tractor is John Deere D. It was purchased in 1928. The 1928 model came and was shipped to Higginsville, Missouri, about 15 miles from here. It's a one-owner tractor that was belonged to uh, my brother-in-law's dad, and it was purchased by him as one of the first tractors sold in Lafayette County in 1928. It belonged to Greg's dad, my brother-in-law, and uh, he it was handed down to him. It was again sold to a guy in Concordia in, in, back in the 80s, and we were able in, in 2019 to able to buy it back and uh, get it back into the family. So it's a three-plow tractor. Back in the day, it, it plowed with three-bottom pull-type plow, trip plow, so there's no hydraulics. And uh, basically, it was a work tractor in its day. It came out right after the horses and horse-drawn plows and uh, took over. We have all the steel for it, what it originally came out with, with steel on it all the way around. We have all the original. 
now it has rubber on it so we can move it around and put it in the sheds and everything. Doesn't tear everything up with steel. It means a lot. One is we hope it's going to stay in the family forever, and uh, that's why we work to get it back. This is one of our favorite tractors just for the uniqueness of it and the age of it and just the background of it especially. Thanks, Greg. Well, the groundbreaking pig heart transplant in a human that happened a year ago wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for a breakthrough technology pioneered here at Mizzou nearly 20 years ago. We're uncovering a wide array of research as our College Roadshow continues from Mizzou next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, you may remember the story about a year ago. A medical team scored big with the groundbreaking pig heart transplant in a human. But that breakthrough technology wouldn't have been possible without research right here at Mizzou. And that focus on research and extension is still a major focus today. There's about 100,000 people on the waiting list for organs right now. The vast majority of those are waiting for hearts. A dire need for more heart transplants, Dr. Randall Prather, a professor here at Mizzou, discovered a major finding more than a decade ago. To go in and disrupt the piece of DNA that makes, that codes for that protein, that enzyme that puts that molecule on the cell surface so it's not there. Prather said the pig donor organ used in the transplant had that genetic modification from Mizzou along with nine others from other locations. But the driver behind Prather's research wasn't to find a solution for humans. Instead, it was pigs. When we started on xenotransplantation, uh, I looked at this as an opportunity to develop the technologies so we could go use them in agriculture. And today, that research has opened the door for him to make a genetic mutation in pigs that don't get PERS. What you can do is alter a couple letters couple letters of three billion, that's a B, three billion letter genome, and we can make pigs that don't get PERS. In the U.S. alone, PERS has cost the industry an estimated $664 million per year. But Prather's research could potentially eliminate it. The barrier today, FDA. We eat all kinds of genetically modified plants. People use the exact same technology doing the exact same thing we do in pigs to make the plants. FDA doesn't regulate those. That's not stopping Prather as his research is ramping up with a construction project to expand the high biosecurity facility at Mizzou. As Mizzou recognizes how vital this and other work research and extension is doing truly is. It's about being relevant. This university, our college, is relevant for Missouri's farmers, for the ranchers, for the foresters. We're helping our farmers adapt to do climate smart practices. And as they apply those new approaches, our farmers tend to benefit. The College of Agriculture, Food and Natural Resources, or CAFNR, hit an all-time record in awards for the recent fiscal year of $62 million. We were very fortunate here at the University of Missouri to receive a $25 million grant, which was the largest in the history of the university as far as a federal grant. Rob Myers is director for the Center for Regenerative Agriculture. It's really about basing agriculture more heavily on soil health, but adding more diversity to our cropping livestock systems so we have more resiliency in the face of challenging weather conditions. 
Launched nearly two years ago, there are 40 faculty and external partners digging into regenerative agriculture today. Well, there's just a lot of questions about what is regenerative agriculture. Is it the same as sustainable agriculture? Is it different from organic agriculture? It's more focused on regenerating the soil, again, making it healthier. Myers says by working with Missouri farmers, they found a way to raise cattle and sheep, along with hazelnuts, chestnuts, and elderberries, all on one farm in an effort to build soil health. So our specific project is to help farmers with cover crops, regenerative grazing systems, planting some trees in pasture and improved nutrient management. And then we're also working with small acreage farmers that are suitable for their situations. And their goal is to grow regenerative agriculture across more of these soils. We hope on 500,000 acres in Missouri, working with 3,000 farmers to have more of these practices in place. The biggest barrier, farmers getting comfortable with the idea that the cost of cover crop seed and other practices will benefit their bottom line. On average, we find that cover crops takes about three years to pay off, but it can pay off faster in some situations. Like if you have herbicide resistant weeds, they can pay off in a year or two, or if you're grazing those cover crops, that can pay off in one year. Meyer says by getting away from bare soils in the winter and cultivating more living roots in the soil year round, the soils will thrive and weather the storms of mother nature year after year. All right, we need to take a quick break, but up next, the political landscape ahead of the midterms and what the outcome could mean for farmers. Our marketing roundtables kick back off next. Farmer to Farmer, the Conservation at Work video series features real stories, real successes, real quick. See what's possible at farmers.gov conservation. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Before we dive back into our discussion, we had a student visiting yesterday, Tegan Engel, and apparently her grandpa is an avid watcher of U.S. Farm Report. They'll be watching this weekend, so Dr. Spain asked for us to give you a shout out. Ben, when we look at in, in inflation right now and the concerns about a, a recession, which commodity today do you think has the biggest risk? Yeah, corn. I would, I would give that, that signal to corn. Uh, a couple of reasons for that. One, uh, the Federal Reserve is increasing interest rates to help control uh, inflation, but they're also their goal is to increase the, the dollar to some extent and slow down demand. And so that's, that's part of the underlying goal, and we certainly see that impacting corn at the moment. Um, ethanol is also a big concern. Uh, you know, we get these RVO or renewable volume obligation uh, targets here at the end of November. Um, those will be playing throughout the next year. So if we have a recession that hits next year and slows down gasoline consumption, um, that hits our ethanol market like what we saw during COVID as well. Well, Pat, we saw the Fed raise interest rates. It wasn't a surprise. It was expected that we were going to see an, another bump. But do you think that the Fed will be forced to make even more interest rate hikes? Yeah, some of the statements this week by the, the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve suggest we're not done yet raising interest rates. And that hit the market pretty hard when that news came out. So again, that's one to watch ahead of us here. Higher interest rates, of course, are a big deal for farmers and their production expenses. And of course, can even affect things like land values. Well, and it's hard to make some of those decisions right now when you look at interest rates and some of those big investments. Yet this week, we saw USDA make another announcement about expanding meat processing here in the U.S. When you look at some of those announcements, yet we have the drought, we have the reduction of cattle supplies. Is it possible that we could soon have too much processing capacity? And at what point do you think that happens, Scott? Yeah, so I think for sure we could get in a situation, you know, when you look at 2023, it looks like we'll be down 5 6% in terms of USB production already. Uh, and, and so when you think about some of the expansion going on, 
we, we, in terms of processing expansion, you know, we may be in a situation relatively quickly where we don't need that shackle space. Uh, now, I, I will say to the investment being made, it's how do we, in, in my mind, think about investment in value-added beef products. Some of those local opportunities, I think, help cattle producers. But, but to the point of, it's dry, we've been slaughtering beef cows, we've been putting uh, heifers in feed yards at a high historical rate, so we know both short and long run here. So you've got to probably get to 2025 or 2026 before we start talking about any potential increase in terms of cattle slaughter today, time. And the, the eastern part of the country had been pretty safe when it comes to drought, but that is not, I mean, we are seeing that, that creep farther east. But when you look at farmland values, it doesn't seem like any of these concerns, Ben, are tapering some of these values. Had like a, I think a $26,000 per acre land value sale uh, earlier this week that was confirmed. Interest rates, if we see those continue to, to creep higher, do you think that that does put the brakes on these these farmland values. I've been impressed with, let me put it this way, I have been uh, amazed maybe at how high mortgage rates for land have gone recently and that hasn't seemed to have any impact on, on land sales um, in terms of value and also volume of sales coming to the market in some cases. So you've got that, you've also got the drought concern uh, and we continue to see these record high land prices. At some point we'd expect that to, to tamper, uh, slow down, maybe even decrease a little bit with higher interest rates or mortgage rates, um, but we certainly haven't seen it yet. There's net farm income project projections this year. I know a lot of it does depend on moisture, Pat, but how do you think, do you think this is gonna be a pretty solid year for some producers that will only fuel some of those farmland purchases? Yeah, I think 2022 is a very mixed bag for lots of producers around the country, right? You got some folks who had a very good year because they got high prices for their commodities. Maybe they booked some of their inputs when things were not quite so high. On the other hand, people on the other side of that ledger, of course, as well. As we look ahead, I think there's a better chance that, that output prices drop before input prices drop. So we could see some challenges in front of us in 2023 and 2024. 2023, 2024 crop year. I mean, how concerned are you about the input side of it and the cost side of it compared uh, to, the, to the commodity prices that farmers could see? Absolutely. I think we're, we're more likely to see that cost price squeeze getting worse as we look ahead. Uh, you look at any period of history where we've had these run-ups in terms of farm income and it's always been a situation where the receipt side has fallen faster than the cost side. It's hard to get that cost side to work down and, and we're really doing nothing with, with the input side except keeping you know, those input costs fairly high. So I, I will say I think there's a lot more worry about that squeeze going forward. Thank you guys for joining us. We need to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more U.S. Farm Report in just a moment. Pink pumpkins may be a bit rare, but thanks to the agronomy club here at Mizzou, those pink pumpkins have a purpose. Drive into this South Farm field. We had a wonderful, bountiful crop. And you'll witness a pumpkin wonderland. Well, that first initial month is very crucial. Growing pumpkins isn't easy, but it's an art these agronomy club members have down to a science. And now they're doing it all for a cause. The agronomy club this past year decided that we would like to do a very nice service event for our local community and grow pink pumpkins for breast cancer awareness. Growing pumpkins with a purpose, thanks to Alicia Moreland, founder and director of Alicia's Pink Pumpkin Painting Party. Just a grassroots awareness campaign that uh, I started about 15 or 16 years ago. She says it all started after her boss discovered she had breast cancer and then went through radiation and chemo. 
I, I didn't want to see anybody else suffer like that. And that's when Alicia's pink painting pumpkin party was born. Tim Reinbot and Mizzou were instrumental in growing pumpkins. And then they started growing these pink grown pumpkins, which is just amazing to me. As a way to encourage more women to get yearly mammograms, especially those in rural areas, her painting pumpkin parties draw quite the crowd. We've got pink for breast cancer awareness. We've got uh, black that represents the cancer and kind of the sadness. We've got silver because there's always hope. It was a great opportunity to give back to the community by growing all these pumpkins and inviting the community to come out and participate and creating that sense, um, that feel of community while giving back to the breast cancer awareness cause. And their efforts aren't done yet. The Mizzou Agronomy Club challenges other agronomy clubs across the country to have a fundraiser for breast cancer awareness as well. Well, when we come back, John Phipps, he has customer support this week. Well, we've mentioned it's been a dry fall here in Missouri, and it's a mild one too. 100% of Missouri right now is currently in drought. Three months ago, only 34% of the state was experienced dryness. But as John Phipps points out, it's an issue that's moving east. More people are noticing the devastating multi-year drought in the west, but is it spreading? Seems like over the last 40 years or so, Arid conditions seem to be moving east several miles per year. Climate change or historical weather pattern movements. And that's from Mike Schrammel in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Now, I should point out, uh, this question was received last spring before many parts of the Midwest endured a period of below normal rainfall. Now, I had my preconceptions what the answer to this question was, but a little research muddied the waters, or raised the dust anyway. The term arid is defined as having little or no rain, but is usually connected with high temperatures as well. I think these maps from NOAA data might be uh, give us some help. First, this map of the continental U.S. shows current average annual rainfall. The colors can be misleading, but you can notice a sharp decline in the eastern plains. This map is unsurprising until we view it in con context with history. Compare it with these series of 30-year increments of rain and temperatures from NOAA. Uh, climate scientists have fixed on 30-year increments to create averages and expose trends. For precipitation, the averages are actually increasing east of the Mississippi and a, a little bit uh, all over the U.S. The largest change has been in the northern Midwest, which probably contributes greatly to the cropping changes and the yields that we have seen during my career anyway. But now add in the same series for temperatures, which are a little bit more dramatic. The, per uh, the perception of increased aridity may come from both factors, but temperature appears to be the dominant influence. The West is simply scorching with acceleration since the turn of the century. Since rainfall wasn't high there to begin with, what little more has been received is subject to rapid evaporation. 
Both maps show trends going mainly one direction, not randomly changing. I think it is a result of climate change because it's exactly what a climate scientist told me would happen in my area of the central Midwest anyway 20 years ago. Longer and more frequent droughts and larger and more frequent rain events. If it is some kind of cycle, it is on a long enough time scale, a century plus and counting, that farmers cannot simply expect to ride out the present trend. Thank you, John. Well, when we come back, a Mizzou grad who took to the skies after college, and it's been a life of service since. We'll close out the show with a tribute to agriculture and the military next. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF. BASF, helping you to do the biggest job on earth. I remember my first experience going to work at the farm for my father-in-law, having to move irrigation pipes and thinking, my gosh, this is hard work. And those, you know, those people don't have sick days and, and there's no rain outs and, and all that. They got to show up every day and do the work. And that's the same characteristics that our football team needs to have. And so we're, we're really fortunate to have those type of players on our team. Well, it's a special game this weekend at Mizzou. It's not only the Ag Day game, but it's also military appreciation. And as Mizzou Athletics toasts to both, we're doing the same with a farmer who's led a life of service. Strike up a conversation with Scott Phillips. I love to raise pigs. <laughs> I really love it. And you'll quickly experience a passion that's contagious. I went to the University of Missouri and I graduated in 1983. And uh, I came from the farm here and started there and always wanted to get back to the farm. That journey back to the farm started after high school when Phillips ventured to the University of Missouri two and a half hours from home. I was majoring in agriculture economics. The son of two Mizzou grads, Phillips received both a bachelor's and master's degree from Mizzou. I don't know if I had a career plan back then. All I know is I got a master's is because I got my bachelor's a little quicker than I needed to. Life put him on another path, working for Monsanto Company as a chemical sales rep and then Edward Jones as a stockbroker. I always wanted to get back to the farm and life is always full of setbacks and failures. Failures are just a way to redirect. They're nothing more than that, but there's all kinds of setbacks. And so I went broke as a stockbroker. And with that, life took yet another turn. My dad was in the uh, Air Force. He was Air Force Reserves, flew C-130s out of Richards Gebauer. And I thought, well, I do love to fly. Richards Gebauer Air Force Station was in Belton, Missouri, only 40 miles from his home farm. And by chance, Phillips crossed paths with someone while in training one day. I just met a guy that looked like his mom just died. He looked like death warmed over. And I, and I asked, hey, what's wrong with you? You look terrible. And he goes, well, I did not get fighter qualified. And I'm supposed to, I was sent here by an F-4 squadron. And I thought, and I said, well, hey, if you want to, maybe you could take my slot on C-130s and I could maybe try and go fly the A-10 out of Richard Bauer. Just totally off the cuff there. Flying over Bosnia in a peacekeeping mission to other ventures as a fighter pilot. As a reservist, he was able to fly less and be on the farm with his family more. I was able to do both of those actually concurrently during the 90s and then then I ended up getting out of the Air Force and just sticking with raising my family and raising pigs. After the hog market crashed, Phillips military training helped the brothers combat that crisis. It, it gives you uh, intestinal fortitude. It gives you guts. 
It gives you uh, perseverance, things like that. Uh, really important things in business and in life. Really important in life. Both his son and his son-in-law serve in the military, and his nephew and niece are now part of the hog farming operation with plans for some of his children to also return to the farm one day. Farming's changed. So is communications. Communications drastically have changed now to where you can just have a have a phone and call. That's not the way it was back then. Well, agriculture's changed too. Hog farming's changed. Uh, we're bigger now. That doesn't mean we're less personal. A Mizzou grad turned fighter pilot who's now a passionate pig farmer. And he says farming and serving in the military are entwined more than you might think. A lot of people that are in the military grew up on the farm. I think there's just the sense of community, the sense, not a sense of entitlement, but a sense of sacrifice. A noble life of service, both on and off the farm. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend on our 2022 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow, thanks to Bex. What a fun college roadshow it's been, and a big thanks to Mizzou for welcoming us this week. We invite you to tune in next weekend as we're back in the studio as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.